Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to another episode of No Script, No Problem on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? I'm your host, Steve Berkowitz. I've been interviewing fascinating and talented people from all walks of life for the past 20 years as an unscripted television producer and before that as a small town sports reporter. Each episode, I talk to extraordinary individuals working in documentaries, nonfiction TV, true crime, game shows, and much more. If you enjoy No Script, No Problem, please subscribe, download, and rate the show. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also find it on Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. Follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. All right, let's get started. Today, my guest is an Academy and Emmy award-winning film producer and director whose works include Bikram, Yogi Guru Predator, which is on Netflix, Burning, which is on Amazon Prime, Chasing Asylum, Out of Iraq, Taxi to the Dark Side, and Gonzo, The Life and Work of Dr. Hunter S. Thompson. Please welcome Eva Orner. Eva, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Eva, I want to start off with Burning, which is streaming now on Amazon. It's an incredible film. It takes a a really deep dive, an, an unflinching look, if you will, at the catastrophic Australian bushfires of 2019, 2020, which uh, is known as the Black Summer. And you take a take a look at climate change and how that affected the bushfires. And, uh, you know, it burned over 59 million acres, killed an estimated 3 billion animals. As an Australian, tell me about making burning, why you wanted to do this and, you know, what it was like to make this film. I'm Australian, but I've lived in America since 2004. But I was actually visiting home in 2019 and January 2020, which was the absolute height of the Black Summer. And I was so just shocked by the unprecedented scale of the fires. It was everywhere. Everyone was affected. Australia is a country that has fires. It's like California. You know, we're not averse to fires. We burn every year. And we have some really bad fire years, but this was something we'd never seen before. And by the time I left and I was flying back to L.A., my boyfriend and I got on the flight from Sydney where we'd been for a week in thick, thick smoke, which we'd never seen before, and my eyes were watering. I was coughing. So many of my friends and family had been personally affected. By the time I landed in L.A., I was just convinced that I had to do a film about it and really tell the story of how Australia got there, how it is ground zero for climate change, and that it's really coming to wherever you are in the world and that we need to act now. I think one of the other things that really made me want to do this film was it was such a focus on Australia in international press during the fires. It was on the front cover of the New York Times like day after day and there was this huge outpouring of donations from globally, like tens and tens of millions of dollars. And it was very much about the animals and the wildlife because that's what people connect with. But I thought the world is watching. I wonder if we could you know, get a, a big global company to make this film. And so when I got back to LA, we started pitching it and, you know, Amazon jumped on board straight away. What was your kind of POV as you went into this project? There, there's a lot of fire films that have come out or, or are continuing to come out, both in America. You know, there was quite a few on the California fires, the Paradise fires. There have obviously been a lot in Australia and there are more coming, dealing with the fires of Black Summer. 
And like with every film, you kind of look around and if something's in the zeitgeist, there's usually other projects about what you're pursuing. And I think that's fine. I've had a lot of experience with that and it doesn't scare me or put me off I, unless I see something that's exactly like what I want to do. And this is not a criticism because I think there's room for so many films and stories about this, but I do find that the majority of them, they kind of talk about the victims and the stories which are compelling and so important and again not a criticism but they definitely the majority of them shy away from really confronting climate change there's usually a bit of like a kind of climate change in the in the third act you know this very small mention of it because it's it's scary and it's hard and it maybe people in their heads think it puts off audiences or it's changing so much and so I felt like I couldn't tell this story this story was really a window to telling the story of climate change because in Australia it's really ground zero for climate change and we have a Trumpian government that's pretty much climate change denying and I felt like a lot of the world probably didn't know that and this would be a good way to tell that story and expose them and you know shame them on a global scale. Seeing Scott Morrison you know walk in with the big piece of coal and just kind of make this big scene was very kind of powerful for me, you know, as an American to kind of see that um, and what, you know, the kind of anti-climate change that you deal with in Australia. Can you kind of just set up for, for the audience kind of what that atmosphere is like in Australia when it comes to the overall opinion as to climate change? So Australia's contrary to what most people globally, I think, would believe is a really conservative country you know we were late to embrace uh, marriage equality we're quite conservative on a lot of levels and we've had consistently a majority of conservative governments over the years and right now we find ourselves for the last for, for the best part of a decade really we've had a super conservative government and you know they're quite Trumpian in a lot of ways and so in terms of climate change they side with the Murdoch press they side quite strongly with climate change deniers And the reason behind all of this is that Australia is one of the largest exporters of fossil fuels, particularly coal, in the world. So we're a really rich fossil fuel country and we rely on that. The story we tell is that that supports our economy. And it does to a degree, but it doesn't fully support our economy. We export mostly coal to, you know, climate villains of India and China. And if we had governments who looked forward we would have done things very, very differently. We've known the writing is on the wall with climate change for the last 30 years. And we are also this very, very hot, sunny country. We could be a world leader in renewables, in solar, in wind energy. And instead of doing that, we've doubled down on fossil fuels. And it's basically left us being a pariah on the global stage. I'm sure most people have read about over the last few weeks, uh, the COP, you know, the the, uh, Conference of the Parties, the UN climate meeting that was held at Glasgow a few weeks ago. And it was incredibly important because we're doing incredibly badly globally combating climate change. We're missing all our targets and and our marks. And Australia performed woefully and was very much exposed for being a villain and a pariah at that conference. And our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, was pretty much humiliated. And we were lumped in with China, India, Brazil, Russia, all of the villains in this world. And I think a lot of people globally would think Australia is pretty progressive and pretty good on climate change. But part of making this film was I wanted to expose Australia for what it really is. I was very naive. I, you know, you have the same talking heads very Fox News-esque type people. And you even said the Murdoch kind of media. I think it's Sky News that you have. Very, you know, very much pushing that, you know, that narrative. Um, And, you know, it 
it really resonated for me how it doesn't matter how many fires you have because you show you very much really well you document fire after fire after fire you know the average person do they kind of equate now at this point do, in Australia, do they go, okay, yeah, it's climate change. Or is there still this kind of mindset of, no, it's like, there's a point in the movie where it's like, it's arson emergency, you know, do people still think that it's just people setting, setting fires? I mean, some people do. It's the Murdoch press have a really big hold on Australia. It's the dominant press in Australia. And so the thing with the Murdoch press and and fake news outlets like that is once they put something out there, even if they recant it, which they did in the case of spreading rumours that arsonists were starting all of these fires, which is physically impossible. It doesn't make any sense because the fires were so massive. But once it's out there, even if you recant quietly, it's still out there. You know what it's like. It's out there on Facebook or it's out there in the whatever in the conspiracy theory world. And so that that's one of the that's one of the biggest problems. And that's why I spent a portion of the film looking into that because that was incredibly damaging and you know I wanted to take the Murdoch media to task because I think they've created so many problems in the world that and not enough people sort of expose them and 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 expose them to what they really are which is just telling lies so so that was a really important part of the film. I want to ask you about some of the characters because you do you have some great characters in there one of them is scientist and author Tim Flannery who who kind of feels like the guy trying to hold everybody together you know he's he's the rational person in there trying to tell everybody that hey it's all it's climate change everybody you know tell me a little bit about tim and, and your uh, take on him and and what he brought to the project uh, i'm a huge tim flannery fan and i have been for decades he's he's an australian scientist he's world renowned he was just at the cop in glasgow everyone kind of knows him he's written a lot of books and he's been you know banging the drum on climate change for 30 years and had some successes, but, you know, with the current government, obviously not a lot of success. And he's incredibly solid, somewhat, op- he tries to be optimistic. He breaks things down really simply. And I, he was one of the first people I approached because you couldn't do a film about this story in Australia without having Tim Flannery on board. I just, he's just, he just breaks things down really, really well. And I think he's very clear in the film and very appealing. And it's interesting too, I didn't know this, you know, he'd, he'd lost a house in, in a previous fire in Australia. And I feel like that's going to be a very common experience for a lot of people. And it's weird that I now live in California and have for a long time. And I have so many friends that lost homes in the fires over the last few summers here. So part of the reason also to make the film is, you know, Australia's ground zero for climate change and for this extreme weather. But part of the story is that it's coming to you wherever you are soon. And the idea was to you know, ignite a flame under people and to say, we have to do something now. Do you feel like there's a little bit of people are just getting so used to these massive fires? I mean, I know personally in Los Angeles, you know, that the one where, you know, the 405 was on, mm-hmm. on in, up in flames, right? But now, you know, you hear Solvang is on fire. You hear Northern California is on fire we're all, it happens so frequently. We're all kind of like, okay, like what it's, is it the same in Australia? Like what I I just, I feel like I I don't know what you have to do to get through to people. Yeah, it's a really good point. I feel like in Australia, they say one in four people were affected by the last fires. And in the film, we really talk about the fact that fires are not new in Australia. They always happen. It's like California, but they're just getting to a point now where they're just beyond 
imaginable, the size, the scale, they're creating their own weather systems. I mean, it's you, you can't win at all. There's no chance with these fires. I feel like in Australia, people were more affected and more devastated. And while there are still plenty of people who don't believe in the science, it somehow in America, it's different. I, it, It's so interesting that you say that. I mean, I remember two summers ago, just before I was going to Australia to make burning, there were the, the, the fires you were talking about. And and California, well, LA was certainly in smoke. And I remember going out and buying, um, you know, air purifiers for all my all the rooms in my house because the, the air was so bad. And I feel like people just go on with their lives. I, I I don't know what it'll take for people to actually do something. And again, that's part of the reason for making the film because we're at the point now. And Tim Flannery actually speaks about this really well in the film. He says, "It absolutely do whatever you can. Get solar on solar panels on your roof. Drive an electric car. Reduce your meat consumption. You know, do everything you can at an individual and a community and a state level. But we're at such a critical point. We're past the tipping point." And he says the biggest thing we have to do is convince global governments to act really aggressively with emission reductions by 2030. And that's that's where he's sort of saying, you know, do everything you can, but we have to vote differently. And I think that's sort of the biggest call to action with this film. We have to vote differently. And we're at a point now where if you care about your kids or grandkids or your future, you have to put climate change as your number one issue when you vote. And that's just not happening with enough people. Does Australia run into the, the same problems that we do here with lobbyists and big money mm-hmm. influencing politicians? We we are hearing about this endlessly with Joe Manchin and obviously all of the Republicans. So does Australia 100%. deal with the same thing? A hundred percent. I mean, the fossil fuel lobby is so huge in Australia. There's something called the Minerals Council, which is this really dubiously named lobby group that's incredibly powerful. And what you see in Australia is very similar to here where you see people from it's our our um our liberal party is actually our conservative party it's weird that it's called that but our essentially our republicans are all in the pockets of the fossil fuel industry and lobbyists and you see them when they come out of government they go into you know board positions in those companies or they come out of those companies and go into government so it's exactly the same kind of situation here and that's and that's one of the issues and we had this great guy in the film, Mike Cannon-Brooks. He's kind of like Australia's Elon Musk. He's like a young um, entrepreneur, billionaire, and he's putting a lot of money into developing renewables. And he's got this great project, the Sun Cable, which is this, it's building the biggest solar farm in the world, the biggest battery storage for that power in the world, and the biggest underground cable that will go from Australia to Singapore and transport our solar power to power like you know i think it's about a quarter of singapore and he that's that's in construction now it'll be done within less than 10 years and he says the future is there's going to be tons of those cables running from australia under the ocean but why is it an entrepreneur doing that why isn't that government and why isn't that taking a redundant industry the fossil fuel industry and turning it into renewables that's what a government's job is and he says this really beautiful in the film he says governments should think about the future that's what good government's job is but all they do is think about the next election cycle and that's i think where we really lost our way and it's pretty heartbreaking to watch and that's absolutely true here as well is don't care about their constituents they care about whether they're going to win the next time and who's paying for their campaign and they're destroying the planet and the craziest thing that i always come back to is it's so funny i don't actually have children but all of these politicians have children and grandchildren and they're basically their job is basically 
fucking up the lives of their children and grandchildren. They always talk about families and how important family is and the future is and their grandchildren. And it's like they're completely in a position where they could change the lives of their family's future and they just don't do it because of money. It's just, I mean, it's, and I sound naive saying, saying it with such a shocked way, but it just doesn't make any sense. Absolutely. I want to ask you about another fantastic character that you have in the film is the fire captain, Greg Mullins. Mm. He's the heart, right? I mean, uh, tell me a little bit about Greg, how you, how you found him and kind of what he means to the film. Yeah, Greg and Tim were really my two first starts, I think. Greg is a career firefighter. He's been fighting fires in New South Wales, which is the state where Sydney is the capital, for over 50 years. But he also, you know, got into politics. He was the ex-fire commissioner of New South Wales. So he's sort of been on both sides. And he's just the most, he's just the most humble, wonderful, kind man. And he cares so much. And he's he says it really eloquently in the film. He says, you know, you don't go into public service to make a lot of money. You do it because it's a calling. And he's fighting so hard and he's been vilified by successive governments and ridiculed by the Murdoch press. And he's, all he's doing is trying to warn governments about what's happening and they're not listening to him. And then he's seeing what was predicted 30 years ago when he's out in the field fighting fires. And I think he's a, when, when he finally saw the film, I was so nervous for him to see it. But I said to him, it's a little bit of a love letter to you. I said, it's like, it's really your story. And I felt like he really deserved that because he's really spent his whole life trying to do something about this. And he's not giving up. And he's just, he's such a wonderful man. And I, the, the Australian premiere was just recently at the Sydney Film Festival where we won an award. And I had, I couldn't go and I had Greg introduce the film and then also accept the award. So it was I thought it was just, it was really nice to have a cinema with, you know, it's a beautiful old cinema in Sydney where it premiered and there were 2,000 people in the audience and he got a standing ovation and cheers. And I felt like for someone who's spent his whole career doing this, it was probably really nice recognition for him. I'm a massive Greg Mullins fan. <laughs> he's spent an awful lot of time working with firefighters in California. And because the seasons are opposite in the nor- you know, northern and southern hemisphere with Australia, what his, him and his team would do is they would often come here in the Australian winter, which is the California summer, and fight fires with California firefighters. And then the California firefighters would reciprocate and help Australians out. And Greg told me this is one of the things I wish, you know, you just can't always get everything into a film, but he told this story about how they can't do that anymore because the, because the weather has changed so much, climate has changed so much, the seasons have extended and they overlap so much that now they can't reciprocate and help each other. And that was really terrifying to me. There's a moment when he breaks down, you mm. know, the loss of another firefighter. That, that is like, that is the one, like one of the moments that, um, that I found to be extremely like tough. You know, I mean, you can tell, you can clearly see how much, you know, being a firefighter means to him. What did you learn about that kind of profession and about kind of like how tough of a job that that is for, for the firefighters in Australia? I mean, what's really interesting in Australia is that most firefighters, not all, but the majority are volunteers. And so, and, you know, another thing we couldn't fit into the film, but because the fire season was so long that year, people were working for like four months every day fighting fires in the most grueling, horrendous circumstances and conditions that ever encountered that have probably ever been seen on the planet. And they weren't getting paid for it. And that to me was astonishing. Um, so that was kind of, that's something really interesting. I think in terms of surprising things and things I learned in the film, I think one of the things that shocked me the most was the um, pyrocumulus 
storms, the, the fires create their own weather storms, and you see them in the film. When I first saw the footage, I thought it was fake. Honestly, it's so crazy. It looks like a nuclear bomb exploded, but it's these it's this extreme weather event and it causes, the fires are so severe and so hot and it's so dry. They actually cause this cloud that looks like a nuclear bomb and then they create their own thunder and then the thunder, it's like dry thunder and then that, that happens and lightning and that happens and starts more fires. And Greg talks about his father was a firefighter as well and he said it was kind of a legend among firefighters, these, these, these extreme weather events and he thought he'd seen like one in the 70s and he said he saw over 10 this fire season and if that's not enough of an example of how the climate has changed I don't know what is now here's a man who's been in the field for 50 years saying it's different it's unprecedented we have to do something and similar to the big Greta Thunberg worldwide movement um, to bring awareness uh, to climate change and to fight for some new regulations in Australia, you show um, some some of these uh, young people who are really fighting uh, to make change. Um, the one the one young woman, Daisy Jeffrey, is a very powerful figure. What is that kind of youth movement like in Australia? How did that affect you as a filmmaker? It's really surprising because da- I mean, Daisy's fantastic, and she's totally. I always call her Australia's Greta Thunberg. Like that's who she is, and she was she was one of. Uh, quite a few we just use one in the film but there was it's not just her important to point out who organized the student rallies which were massive in Australia hundreds and thousands of people came out and protested and it spread from being just kids to being adults as well and Daisy says it beautifully in the film that Australia's Australians don't protest you know Australia's a pretty laid-back country it's got a good life there's no big security threats um it's a socialized country you know you get free education and health it's a pretty great place to live so it takes a lot to get people out to protest so I think I think the world Australia and the government was really shocked at the size of the student protests and she's just She's such a great, I mean, I call her a kid. She's 18 now. She's at university, but she's such a great kid and she's so articulate and she's so wonderful. But it sort of breaks my heart as well. She talks about, she says, don't, oh God, she says, don't get me started talking about hope. You know, people always saying, you, you know, you young people give me hope. Old, the older generation say that to her. And she says it just it just infuriates her. And I, I think that's something we don't talk about a lot. It's this expectation that the youth are going to save us from the problems that we created and are handing to them as, a, as, our, as their legacy or as our legacy to them. And she kind of brings that up, not in an angry or bitter way at all, but she says, you know, I don't even know if I want to have children. And she's 17 and she's thinking about that because of the state of the planet. And when you see that, it's heartbreaking. And it's also that thing of when I think about my last few years of high school, I mean, you know, we were being kids, you know, we were we were studying and, you know, worried about boys or about whatever we were into. But these kids have spent their last few years of high school just being consumed with organizing and rallying and and protesting. And and I think it's amazing what they do, but it's also really sad and it's because of something we created. So I think it's a really important story to tell. And I think in the film she's just a real powerhouse. She's got a great voice in the film. I'm curious for you what kind of emotions you know, this film brought out for you as an Australian. Do you have any hope that we can, we can, solve, <laughs> we, we can take some action here on climate change and that specifically in Australia that you, you can stop some of these massive fires? The film, I mean, the, the last part of the third act in the film does present some hope, like Mike Cannon-Brooks, the entrepreneur, who's really putting all, all this money into renewables and Tim Flannery and Daisy and a lot of 
and and Greg Mullins, all the people we've talked about, they all talk about the fact that basically, I think the last line in the film is, you know, yes, we can do it. Of course we can do it. So, and Mike Cannon-Brooks is really good talking about this. He says that we have the technology now to stop climate change. The problem is government inaction. And so you have to do what he's doing, which is lead with business or with community or, you know, there's, we've got to find ways around it and then the government will follow. In terms of, you know, I'm not an optimist, I'm a realist, but when I'm with these kind of people and also when I was at the COP in Glasgow, these people are politicians or policymakers or, you know, CEOs of businesses and they're all, their jobs are to be optimists. I think my job is to be a realist, but I think often when you're a realist, people think you're a pessimist, but I'm not. But I, I agree with them. I think, of course, we can do it. We've got the capability to do it now, but we don't have the global governments to do it. And I think it'll change, but my concern is it will change. The change will be too slow and we're already missing all of the big key targets with reduce, with emission reduction. And so the planet is going to get hotter. It will hit an increase in temperature of two degrees and that will be catastrophic. And it'll be sooner than we think because every projection is always, unfortunately, found to be too far off and it's actually sooner than it is. So I think you have to be somewhat optimistic to just keep going. <laughs> But I, I think we're in the, I think the future is going to be really tough in a lot of places on, on the planet. I think at some point yeah. we'll turn it around yeah. um, because you can do that when you reduce, with, with, with really aggressive emission reduction, we will reach a plateau and then the temperatures will start to reduce. But before that, I think we'll get to a place where the planet becomes pretty difficult for a lot of countries and a lot of people to live on. I have to ask you about the style. Of the, of the of the film specifically with the interviews you have a very unique kind of look with the interviews is that something that you picked out just for this film is that you know was that something that you had in mind for a certain reason what was your thought going into the film from a style perspective i wanted it to be as natural as possible because it's a real story and it's people in their own environments at home or where they work and so it was very naturalistic. I think it wasn't overly stylized. We, you know, I, I always, interviews are tricky. You know, how do you make interviews interesting? But I guess the answer is you just interview interesting people and cut them well. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an interview-based, it's an interview and archive film because it's a story about the past. So it's very, very heavy on archive footage. But in terms of interviews, you know, I always shoot two cameras. I really like using iDirects or um, Interatrons just to get people looking down the barrel of the lens because it's so much more personal and more powerful. But it, it was quite simple. I think one of the biggest challenges with this film was that we made it during COVID. So I'm incredibly, I feel incredibly grateful and just thankful because when COVID started, I think everyone collectively just thought, oh, God, we're not going to work until this is over. And we kind of saw our careers just grinding to a halt. And I felt really lucky to be able to go to Australia at a time when COVID was pretty contained. But I had to do all of the research in LA, then go to Australia and do two weeks in a, locked in a hotel room, like actually not allowed to leave a hotel room, no open windows, nothing, doing quarantine, which was how they kept COVID out for a while. And so I was really just doing everything by Zoom. And one of the strange things, because we couldn't spend too much time with people for all of these various COVID restrictions, I didn't, I couldn't go back and forward to places. And so I was really meeting people in the flesh the first time the day that we filmed with them. And if it was multiple days, you know, obviously we got to know people better. But it was really interesting because I thought that might have an effect on the film. But I think people were used to it. I think I talked to people so much via Zoom before I met them and everyone wanted to talk so badly and, and share their stories that it was one of the surprises of the film where I felt like 
I don't want to say performances, but, you know, I felt like their interviews and their storytelling was was really unaffected by all of it. And I thought that could be a problem. I thought it might be a little stiffer, but it turned out to be, you know, it, it didn't seem to really make a big impact on the film. I did not notice that this was filmed over the pandemic. So, but it, but it definitely was interesting. It made it a very different process. And I always, I guess when I look back, I always remember this is the film we made during COVID, you know, in the first half of COVID. So, so it was just, there were a lot of additional challenges last year making movies. So I'm just so grateful that it, came together and that it's out now it's such a relief and and I'm I guess I'm proud of it I'm really proud of it you should be 100% I think as a filmmaker though you know I never I always it's really hard to watch films when they're finished and I always feel like all you do is look at what you could have done differently or what you could have done better and in a, in a gentle way not like killing myself but I always think the day you make a film and you think it's perfect is the day you should never make another film so I'm really proud of it because I think it's really important but you know I don't by any means think it's like a perfect film or anything <laughs> well I would think how long did you how long did you shoot for for this particular film that's a good question I can't remember the days I'm just trying to think I think it was like it was six weeks pretty straight it was I think it was around six weeks in one, two, three different states in Australia. And I think from the time we pitched it, we I think from the time we started production was it was less than a year actually. We started production in November and we finished it in August. So it was pretty fast. I have great editors I'm so lucky I get to work with and I had two editors on it because it's such a timely film. Um, we did this on Bikram as well. We had this, two editors working concurrently and it just... And, you know, it obviously halves the, the physical, not the physical time, but the length of time it takes. And, and it worked really well on both of those films. And I, did, I thought it was really prescient to get the film out before the next election in Australia. And as time would have it, because the COP was postponed, the Conference of the Parties in Glasgow, the climate conference, it came out just before the climate conference. And so we were able to screen it there, which was kind of amazing. And I got to go. And that, that worked out really well too. You mentioned Bikram, so I have to ask about it. <laughs> As a yogi, because I do yoga like three or four times a week, I love it. You blew me away with Bikram. So <laughs> what, kind of yoga, what kind of yoga do you do? Not hot yoga. So I do, yeah, I do vinyasa. <laughs> it's, okay. yeah, I am not, yeah. yeah. So I, no, I do yoga. Trust me I do yoga most days too, but I was never into Bikram yoga. But I had to do some Bikram yoga, obviously, to really understand it and work out how to film it. And that's another film, you know, I think is, I feel really proud to have been a part of that and to make that film. I kind of knew who he was. I mean, just because... He was famous. He is famous. famous. Yeah. yeah. And and be, if you do yoga, you know about Bikram yoga. Mm-hmm. And like, it, what was amazing with what you did was it almost... Like, I guess I just didn't realize that he was like a cult leader. And that was like <laughs> the way you kind of, yeah, showed the cult-like atmosphere surrounding this guy. How, you know, and as I watched it, it was one of those documentaries where you you want to scream at all the people on, you know, all the people being interviewed. Like, how could you do this? What are you thinking? What, what was, what was, uh, what was kind of the most uh, amazing thing that you learned about the people who kind of got swept up into Bikram's world? I mean, I think the really important thing with cults, because I've done a few things about that are, you know, somewhat culty. And I think, I think it's really easy to judge and to say, I would never fall for that. I would never become a part of that. But I, I feel like it's so easy for people to be to become a part of that. You know, if you're feeling a little vulnerable, if you're going through something, it's such a classic 
ploy that's been happening throughout time. I mean, look at something like Nexium that I think we were all obsessed with last year or the year before. Like, you know, there's just always a new scam or a new cult. And I think what's amazing to me is just how much people want to be a part of something, how much people want to belong. I'm a bit of a lone wolf. I've never been a big team kind of, I mean, I'm a team when I make films and I love working with people, but I am a little bit of a, I'm not a group person on a big scale. And so, you know, I do yoga at home on apps. I don't love going to classes. So, you know, COVID didn't disrupt that for me. But a lot of people, so many people, I think the absolute vast majority of people want to be a part of something. They like going to a class. They like going to a club. They like being a part of something. They like having yoga friends. And so I think it's easy to be like, oh, my gosh, how could people fall for this? But so many people do. And I think it's, it's, it's not about, it shouldn't be about judging them. It should just be about, like, why are we so susceptible to things like that? What are we looking for? What are we missing in our lives? And one of the biggest challenges with Bikram was I came into the film knowing he was a complete creep and an asshole and a criminal. But to make, to tell the story, you had to capture his charm and to make him look appealing in the first act or, you know, the first half of the first act, because otherwise the people in the film would look silly for having fall, fallen for it. And they're not, they're smart people. And that's, I guess, what I'm trying to say in a roundabout way. These people are not, you know, they're, they're smart people and they they kind of got, I guess, conned in a way, but they they became part of something and that became very important to them. And so one of the biggest challenges was, you know, I think Bikram's a complete dick and laughable, but we had to really show footage, archive footage of him where he was somewhat appealing and capture that showmanship and that charm. And in a lot of ways that became the hardest part because I can't stand him. And so it was a lot of discussion in the edit about tone and about, you know, are we really making him look somewhat appealing? Can people watch this film and see how people got sucked into this community? And I think it's interesting that you talk about it's really like a cult because that's what we were trying to expose. It is very much a cult. It was run by a, like a cult. The other thing you, I thought you did well with Bikram is, is you revealed his kind of treachery, his deceit piece by piece, like the onion you know, you were able to peel the onion a little bit by a little bit, who he was, how he was kind of a fraud in terms of kind of telling the story of Bikram. What, what were you trying to do? What were you trying to accomplish with the storytelling? There was really, there was so many interesting things about Bikram. We started it before Me Too and Time's Up happened. And it was a story that happened before that. And so a lot of the, all of these women who appear in the film, all of these victims of abuse had taken him on had gone through the legal system the legal system had failed them public the public had failed them the community in Bikram in the Bikram world had failed them and they were vilified and they were torn down and most of them walked away with very little or nothing and he got away with it so there was no justice so while we're making the film when Time's Up and Me Too happened it was so interesting because suddenly these women were being able to were in a position where they were being able to be heard on a global scale because it was a Netflix film but also I think collectively you know the world looked at them in a different way in a way where before they weren't heard and they were maybe ridiculed a little bit and now they were taken really seriously and so a lot of them were reluctant to be in the film because they'd told their stories before or they'd gone public with their stories before and it hadn't paid off and so what's really interesting is with the with burning every single person that I spoke to wanted to share their story and wanted to be in the film and obviously I couldn't use everyone I spoke to but it was just people really really wanted to talk and with Bikram I really had to get to know people more and spend more time with them and you know I, I wouldn't say convince them because I really take no as no I don't want to be one of those I'm not a 
I don't know what the word is, like a, you know, sort of um, praying filmmaker who, who goes after people. But I, I really respect people. But, you know, I, there was there was a lot of hesitance. There was a lot of people saying they'd do it and then saying close to the shoot, you know, I don't think I want to do it. And so there was a lot of talking and a lot of listening. You know, that made it tough. But at the same time, there's not one person who was in that film who regretted it. Everyone had a really cathartic experience, I think, because of this, the size of Netflix audiences. And, you know, this film was seen pretty widely they were recognised in public and people would come up to them and thank them and say they're so proud of them. And then a lot of people from the, the Bikram community who had shunned them after all these years called them and apologised and wanted to meet with them. So I think they all had a really positive experience, which was really gratifying for me because the last thing you want to do is sort of exploit people's in your film. So, so that, was, that was, I think, surprising and also really a lovely part of, of making the film. And also outing him on such a public way. I mean, his story was out there, but... When the film came out, so many more yoga studios changed their names and took off the Bikram name. And there was there was quite a big movement for a while of that happening. And I think that was really important. And also, I think now he's globally recognised in a bigger way. And when he travels the world and, you know, lives his creepy existence, I'm sure he gets a lot of heckles and, you know, dirty looks and jeers. And, and hopefully at some point the law will catch up with him because he's a criminal. He's a slippery little fucker. Sorry, you said I can swear and I'm Australian, yes. but um, yes. <laughs> I've got to throw it in. But, you know, he deserves to get his comeuppance and, and so far he's gotten away with it. And I, and I think that's a real failing. I think that's a tragedy. And I think the women who were abused and some men by him and hurt by him need to see him in court. And, you know, it, it may still happen. You never know. What did you see in him that you said, oh, I can see why somebody might lose who they really are and follow his his kind of message, his path, and kind of, you know, end up in a bad place. I mean, I couldn't personally, I'm really quite, not cynical, but I'm not into leaders and I'm not into, as I say, that sort of culty, groupy kind of mentality. I mean, it's, as I was saying before, people are so drawn to community and being a part of something. I mean, I have friends that got into soul cycle and they'd talk about the instructors at soul cycle in this sort of glowing you know idolizing kind of way and I'm thinking you know not that there's anything wrong with being an instructor at soul cycle but it's like that doesn't really excite me but it just it comes down to this thing of people wanting to be a part of something people wanting to improve themselves people wanting to feel good and it does all of those things I never saw the charm in him but I came into it knowing he was a criminal and I do remember back in Australia like I don't know gosh when I, uh, like 30 years ago, I remember a friend, I was doing Ashtanga yoga. And I remember a friend said, do you want to come to a Bikram class? And it was probably pre-internet, but I remember seeing a picture of Bikram in his speedo and I'm like, no, nah, not for me. So, you know, I have this, I have this fairly good, probably bullshit detector, partly because of the work that I do, because <laughs> I meet a lot of creeps. But, you know, a lot of people are really trusting and a lot of people are, um, are looking for a guru and looking for someone to lead them and are looking for self-improvement and are looking for a community and they just people found him charming charming and funny and and also he healed a lot of people I mean there is some I'm not a fan of Bikram yoga or hot yoga particularly because it's too repetitious I think it can create injury please do people don't come after me for saying that I prefer varying my exercise but it's helped a lot of people it's healed a lot of people it's helped people lose weight it's helped people get stronger so there's a lot of reasons that people would become a part of it. And then for a lot of the people that got really abused, they, it became their livelihood. You know, they got sucked into it. They did teacher training, teacher trainings like a cult, all the cult-like 
aspects, no sleep, exhaustion, having paid a lot of money. And then once you're in, you're in, and then you're basically working in the system. So it was pretty textbook culty. But, you know, people that talked about him from the 70s when he first came to LA said he was charming and funny and he wasn't like anyone else. And you see that footage in in the film and you get it. You know, he was like a little guru. He was he was interesting and exotic and teaching and, and people felt and looked good when they did the yoga. And I think that's probably what pulled everybody in. You won an Academy Award uh, for producing Taxi to yep. the Dark Side. Mm-hmm. Amazing film. Yes. So uh, I, I would think that as the U.S. has now exited Afghanistan, you have some strong feelings looking back at that film. What do you kind of see a big picture? I mean, again, this is kind of a huge question but yeah. like yeah like what what do you see kind of now looking back at what you did with taxi to the dark side and kind of our kind of experience with afghanistan and for people who haven't seen taxi to the dark side it exposed torture and um, some pretty hideous interrogation practices of the u.s during the war in afghanistan Oh, it's so it's so painful to talk about. It's really interesting because I've made a few other films, one that was entirely shot in Afghanistan since then, and another one that was partially shot in Afghanistan. So I've been I've been to Afghanistan a lot of times. I've probably spent it's not a lot in the scheme of life, but I've probably spent about six months there all out. You know, I know a lot of people there. I was actually with a friend this morning in LA who was visiting who had worked there for a really long time and we were talking about what we've just seen over the last few months and I think it was inevitable I think we saw the writing on the wall I think we always knew it was going to happen but god it's heartbreaking and painful and I get I got so many emails from people who had appeared in my films Afghans you know asking to help and I wrote so many letters but I'm not in a position where I can help them get out they needed to be there was it was so hard for people to get out and they needed to be employed by a company that was there and you know there was a lot of complications but I I I spent so much time trying to help people and it's it's heartbreaking and I don't know you go back to Taxi to the Dark Side which we made in like 2006 2005 2006 came out in 2007 it's such a long time ago and you know what came out of that was you know gosh I mean Guantanamo and and Bagram and the abuses at Abu Ghraib and I mean the fact that Guantanamo is still going and there are people still there and it just it's just such a mess I mean I don't know I mean there's no solution for Afghanistan if we stayed we'd be there forever and if we left what happened happened and the country's you know on the precipice at the minute I mean they're heading towards economic just wipeout and you know people will be starving unless the World Bank and other funds sort of release their money to a country that's now controlled by the Taliban. It's just, honestly, it's so heartbreaking. And I feel so fortunate that I got to spend time there and, and see meet so many amazing, beautiful people. And they've just, they've just suffered. Unbelievable. I, I find it really hard to talk about because it's so fresh. And watching all those images as we all did over the last few months was just horrifying. Um, I, think, I think I'm still pretty traumatised from it all, to be honest. I, I, I can't imagine... All these topics that you've chosen to to work on, whether it's Afghanistan or the sexual abuse of someone like Bikram, and then obviously climate change that caused horrible bushfires in Australia. And then, you know, you've done a documentary about uh, Iraq as well. These are heavy, serious topics. <laughs> What? Yeah. what is wrong with um, me is that your question what is wrong that's with you? <laughs> i i wasn't gonna say that but i i guess my, my question what what is it that you 
that drives you to take on these big, serious topics? I don't know. I, it's so weird because people do ask me that question. And I, I think I only came to this sort of realization, and maybe it's me sort of doing amateur psychology on myself or something. But, you know, I, I come from a, a sort of, I guess, surprising background where my parents were not born in Australia. They were born in Poland and were Jewish, and they were born in 1937. So they were born, you know, two years before World War II started and my family was pretty much wiped out in the Holocaust. Three of my four grandparents didn't survive. I don't have any really any close cousins. Two very large families were, you know, less than a handful of people came out on either side. And so my parents, you know, grew up as war babies and then displaced baby, you know, displaced children. And, you know, eventually they they separately found their way to Australia. And I had this, they had a great life there and my mum continues to at 84 she's pretty amazing you know I had this great life in Australia living a free life with as I said earlier you know free health and education a great education security a beautiful place I mean I was so lucky but I grew up with parents that had accents and without with only one grandparent and with knowing knowing from a very young age that bad things happen to good people and I think I think that must have had a big impact on me and it not every person affected by the holocaust or a genocide or a tragedy goes and does makes their sort of life's work about it but I think somehow it had a really big impact on me at a young age and I guess I always felt like I wanted to tell these kind of stories and that's just my my you know armchair psychology it could just be because I kind of wanted to be a journalist I mean who knows <laughs> but I, I definitely am very drawn to these stories I find them really challenging and really interesting and you get to spend time with people you wouldn't normally meet and you get to go to places you wouldn't normally get to go to and I feel really blessed all of that said I think it would be probably good for my mental health to do a fun movie at some point (laughs) yeah you you may want to take do an action like a buddy comedy like something (laughs) I don't think I'll do a buddy comedy that buddy maybe (laughs) maybe like maybe like um something pop culture and a little bit okay a little lighter (laughs) before I let you go can you tell everybody where they can find burning and and the rest of your rest of your amazing projects sure I guess the last two are the ones easiest to find um Bikram Yogi Guru Predator which is always a mouthful is on Netflix globally and burning is on Amazon Prime Video just released last week in over 240 countries which is you know, it's so lovely to be able to say that about your films. I think, you know, there's so much debate about the streamers and the power of the streamers and what's good and what's bad. And I'm obviously a massive fan of independent film and that's how I started my career. But there's something really nice about a film being made and doing some festivals and some special screenings and then going out globally in one day to the entire planet. It's like, you know, what do we want ultimately? What do I want ultimately, ultimately as a filmmaker? It's for people to see my films and for them to have an impact. And so... I'm really grateful to platforms like, you know, Netflix and Amazon where these films play. So, but I am very aware that, you know, it's a, it's a very divided and contentious sort of issue about, about working with streamers. But for me, I think for the kind of films I make, you know, you want an audience, you want the widest possible audience because you want to have some kind of impact. And I think you want people to see these films. So, so I feel really pleased about that. As you should. Eva, Thank you so much for doing the show. I really appreciate it. And I encourage everybody to uh, check out Burning. Thank you so much. That's going to do it for another episode of No Script, No Problem. For everyone listening, please subscribe, 
download and rate the show with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also find it at Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. Follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you have any questions, email me, no script, no problem podcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.